0: Well, uh, we're going to continue our our series today on a uh, two part series. We started last week. We're concluding today with eight things I wish I learned when I went to college and um, well let's see here. Is it the right right arrow, Bailey? Yeah. Not responding. Maybe you could help me out, brother. So he's going to continue to. Oh, there we go. All right. Woohoo! We're on again. All right. Eight wishes. Eight lessons. I wish I learned when I went to college. All right. We were getting it here. And uh, yes, yeah, so I want to show you this picture. You've seen it several times already. Yay! Man, who's that guy with the big hair? Woo! You know, the, uh, the guy with the big hair, he's got that look on his face like, I got the girl, right? I mean, <laughs> isn't that the truth? Christy and I were engaged at this point in time. And, uh, you know, that grin on that young man's face there communicates, man, this girl's way out of my league, you know. <laughs> and uh, she, she was. She's a real blessing then, and she's a blessing now, of course, 38 years of marriage um, God's been very good to us, and uh, it brings a a lot of memories when I see pictures like this in my gleeful ignorance of what lied ahead in life in general, not marriage to Christy, of course, um, (laughs) but my immaturity, my need to grow. You know, sometimes there's those days we just, and perhaps you're like me, we just, man, there were more mistakes today than there were things I did well. And Lord, when, when will I get on top of it? When will I start progressing in the right direction? And, and the Lord promises to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we, we gather together in times like this to hear the word, to kind of pierce through and, 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 and lay before us what God has to say about what lies ahead, how to prepare for the future, how to make good decisions, how to avoid the mistakes from yesteryear. And to apply wisdom to our life in such a way that um, we can learn from those things and progress and accelerate in our growth for the Lord Jesus until he comes. And so this collection of lessons learned are a mixture of practical experiences that I've gone through myself and then identifying and interpreting those by Scripture. And the, the intent is to inform you on these specific areas. We're only looking at eight. And, you know, there's probably 100 others we could share, but we've chosen eight here to give to you, kind of a, a flood of information for each one that doesn't look at these, each topic fully and comprehensively, but perhaps enough to give you what you need to continue to make progress in the areas of importance that we're gonna show you, all right? So, eight lessons I wish I learned when I went to college, and let's think about what we looked at last week. Point number one, lesson number one, enjoy college life while you're guarding your heart. God gives us good things to enjoy. We were reminded of that last week as we looked at a passage from Psalms. And the college days are certainly a part of that. They're enjoyable days. They're fun days. But we must watch our hearts and our desires. Remember Proverbs 4.23 we looked at last week. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The way to guide our hearts, the way to set it in the right direction, to avoid the way to avoid the wrong path is what we talked about last week. Make Jesus the treasure you seek above and love above all other treasures, above all other pleasures, above all other desires and loves. And when we treasure God above all things, our hearts will be motivated to pursue the right things that please the Lord. Our second point we looked at is view difficulties through God's eyes. View difficulties through God's eyes. James chapter 1, verses 2-4. through 4. We read this last week. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We, if we were reminded last week from Scripture, we should expect trials, hardships, challenges, difficulties, things where we don't have easy and clear answers that are really stretching in our faith. But we do that and know that from James that God is doing something purposeful. And we don't have joy in the trial, do we? This indescribable joy we have from difficulty and trial is knowing God has a purpose. He's, He's working to accomplish something in me. And we'll talk about that a little bit more today as well as we go to some other points. Thirdly, we looked at choose your closest friends carefully. Our closest friends influence us greatly. And the scriptures tell us to choose our friends carefully. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So we were reminded that personal growth and our love and affection for Jesus will give us the incentive and the natural inclination to want to befriend people that are heading in the same direction as we are, as we are striving to be like Christ. If you have a heart that wants to be like Christ, guess what? You want to be around others that are heading in that same direction, that same first love, to identify and cling with those who are progressing in the direction of Christ-likeness. And finally, our last one we looked at last week was resist the temptation to maximize self and minimize others. Greatness in God's eyes are for those who are servants of others. That's God's definition of what it means to be great in the kingdom. You know, when you uh, buy an appliance, well, you guys probably have never bought an appliance before. Uh, (laughs) Someday you'll buy a refrigerator or a dishwasher. There's always these default settings. We were uh, working a microwave last week. My youngest son was with us. And uh, it's always been super loud. It wakes the dead. It's like, it's so annoying. (laughs) And Christy would be on the other side of the house, and that thing's just going, be it's like, Christy's not in the kitchen. I've got to run across the house, but you can hear it across the neighborhood. And, uh, and that thing's just going. That's a, it's a factory setting. And Austin, he did what the engineer should have done a long time ago. We've been using this microwave for years. He goes, you, can, you know, you can lower that volume in the settings. And uh, now it's beep. Beep. It's like, oh yes, I can sleep again. And um, you know, our factory setting, when we're born in this life, is 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 a default setting on self. That's our that's our mo. That's the way we're born. We're always thinking about ourselves. Right right from out of the womb, we want to be fed, we want to be changed, and we want to sleep. And if if mom and dad take care of those three things, we're usually in pretty good shape. And you know, those self-centered interests don't change, and they get quite sinful. And Jesus tells us so clearly in Philippians 2, 3 through 5, he tells us how to live. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Those who put their faith in Jesus have that factory setting changed and it says now rather than self God and others and so our fourth point last week was resisting the temptation to maximize self and minimize others and make God first and our service to others a priority so now what we're gonna do is go to our next four lessons and we'll try to march on through these as efficiently as we can and the first one's gonna be like this we're gonna start right out the gate we're going full force. We're not going to hold anything back. Let's just give you what you need to hear. <laughs> Your roommate was hand-selected by God himself. And you know, some of you may be thinking, I have a great relationship with my roommate. Everything's fine. And others of you like, why would you say a harebrained thing like this, right? <laughs> it's true, right? And, I hate to break it to you, those of you that are in bliss right now with the roommate, you know there's times will change. (laughs) Things will happen.
1: You'll turn on each other eventually.
0: I hope not. No, roomie life is ups and downs, isn't it? I can say that for sure, because I've been married 38 years and man, she's I didn't mean it quite like that. What I was going to say is, man, she is my love boat. She's my Christian cupcake. And you know what? (laughs) I'll tell you what. There are times this guy, you know, isn't a very good baker and uh, is not treating his wife well. That default setting we were just talking about? Oh, man. I got to fight self. I got to fight comfort. I got to fight me, myself, and I. That's just screaming to burst loose from my heart. Even yesterday, we're driving seven, eight hours in the car back from Ohio, back to here. And uh, yeah, there were times I needed to be put in the corner and uh, with my little hat facing the other way. And I had to ask forgiveness from my wife for things that were said. And Ruby life, man, it's got it's got a mixture of emotions, right? I mean, opposite sides of the spectrum that come and go. I mean, one one week you're hugging and crying together, you're my BFF. I mean, I just the world revolves around you. We're so we're just meant to be together. And the next week you're ready to wring each other's necks. I mean, it's just it, it, sometimes it's it, it's it's Jekyll and Hyde, isn't it? I remember one time. You know, this is over 40 years ago. All right, with my roommate. I still remember this, as minor as it sounds, but it wasn't minor that, that day. I was, I was studying late in the library, and my, my roommate was studying in our dorm room, and I, was, I, I went till it closed, it was midnight, coming back to the dorm, and my mom had made lasagna and gave me some leftovers, and I put it in the dormitory fri- fridge in our room. Oh, you know where this is going. I was so hungry, I could have sold my birthright that, that, that <laughs> evening, right? I mean, it was just really, <laughs> I was famished. And I'm thinking about that melted cheese in the microwave or the hot pot, whatever we had and what we were going to put together there. And, and I was going to eat. And man, I went to that refrigerator, man, it was empty. And there's this, there's this sauce right on the side of my roommate's mouth, right? And he's like, you know, his manna from heaven was, you know, was, was in his tummy, and uh and it satisfied his need, but oh oh, for me, uh you know, I was ready to you know go after him for grand theft. I mean, my heart was ready to indict him uh I was not a happy camper, and just things like that happen. we get on each other's nerves, we irritate each other there's there's habits we have. You know, different sleep habits and, and different study habits and different music choices and different backgrounds and maybe go to different churches. And there's just all the things that just sometimes just, they're not, they're not jiving together right. And uh, in these real emotions, these real circumstances of difficulty, and these don't have to be roommates. They can be professors, <laughs> family members, you know, different people where God just tells us to forbear and we feel like we're at our wit's end. And the Bible speaks to these emotions. We're still to faithfully follow Christ and shine our light on these feelings. We don't ignore them, but we don't follow them. We interpret them with Scripture. What am I supposed to do with this? Because right now, I do want to indict my roommate for eating my lasagna, and now I've got to wait for this you know, gross breakfast out at the cafeteria down below uh, in the morning. And it's just like, what do you do with that? Do you just keep sucking it in? Do you still keep bottling up bitterness? Do you just, just ignore your roommate? Are you just two ships passing in the night? There's a different way. We need to guide our reactions and respond in a God-honoring way. And we're going to start here briefly just with a few points of some clear, concise, undeniable, uh, fundamental truth from the scriptures about God's character that weighs in here, and that's God's sovereignty. All right? We're going to start there. A definition here of God's sovereignty that I've, I've cobbled together before various sources in the scripture. It just says this, God does whatever he pleases while ensuring that his purposes and plans are fully accomplished in all circumstances and all people, all his creation, in a manner that is always consistent with his holy character. Now for you note takers, I'm going to take this piece by piece or I'm going, to, I'm going to show piece by piece in the next few slides. If you haven't gotten it all, you'll get it in the next few slides here. Let's look at each of these. First, God's sovereignty. God does whatever he pleases. God has his plans. He's the authority. He's in control of all things. He's our creator. If he wasn't in absolute sovereign control, he wouldn't be God. And Job 42 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He is in charge. The second part of that definition, ensuring that his purposes and plans are fully accomplished. He's sovereign. What he starts, he finishes. He is actively involved with his creation to ensure that his purposes are fulfilled. That's God's providence. He's not a mere bystander. He's an active participant. And Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And how does he do this? He does this in all circumstances, in all people. As for you, as for you, it says in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph said, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You remember that passage in Genesis, where Joseph was sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. He's separated from his family. He's a faithful steward in Potiphar's household. Potiphar's wife tempts him to sin. He stays faithful to a God, his God, and he lands in prison. He's there for years. I believe it's two years. There he meets two guys. They need help. He interprets their dreams. They both get out. One goes, goes really well for one guy and one not so well for the other guy, all based on God's sovereignty. And finally, De, uh, Joseph gets remembered. And he gets released because he could interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. And there he shows that this in this great famine what Egypt would do to save the world. You realize when you read a verse like this When Joseph's brothers came, ashamed, embarrassed, pleading for food, that God used every event there, good, bad, and everything in between, to accomplish his purposes to the T. In all its difficulty, in all its struggle, there had to be times Joseph had to be wondering, what is going on here? And yet God revealed to him, it's all for good, for the saving of many people, even the people of Israel, to, for God to accomplish his purposes through that great difficulty. God works in all circumstances, all people, even, even evil things. And he does this in a manner that is always consistent with his holy character. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose, we serve a loving God. We follow a God with intention that's sovereign, and He's not just a God that's got all power and all control and doesn't care about anything but Him. He cares about your good. The sovereign God of the universe has your roommate in your room to do something purposeful in you. It's not a mistake, it's not just fate. God didn't miss something along the way, and now you just got to get through it the rest of the semester or year. No. God has put per- people in your lives for a purpose, and that good and grand purpose ultimately is, ma- is to make you like Jesus. For those whom he foreknew, Romans 8 29a, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is God doing? He is working all things for your good to make you more like Jesus, and that is a good thing. And so when we think about roommates that are hand-selected by God, think about it differently. Next time you have that conflict, next time you have that that irritation, next time that leftover lasagna is missing, (laughs) no God's at work. These aren't just irritation where God's just poking and prodding and and just trying to make life difficult for you. He's doing a work in his sovereign plan to make you like Christ, and he uses other people to do that. So let's look at a few things we might think about here, about how God may be working out his good in you through your roommate, all right? And let's start here. To teach me that this life is not all about me. How might God use a roommate in those difficult times for me to think clearly through this, what God's doing? He's sovereign, but what what is he trying to accomplish? And this would be one of them, to teach you that life is not all about you. My comfort, my preferences, my habits, my way, this is not the life God has called us to. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so God, in his kind benevolence, has given you a roommate to help you get off the focus off yourself and to put it on him. What's the second way here of what God might be teaching you? A practical means of loving when others are unlovable. We're talking here the default setting of our human hearts is on me. Self-interest. And that quickly becomes challenged, doesn't it, when there's a disagreement? Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five that by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will the world know that we're different, that the that, that, that Spirit indwells us, that we're a Christ follower? It's how you love people. And he says in another part of the Gospels there, you know, it's not just loving those who love you. Who doesn't do that? The Pharisees do that. Guys, I'm not saying this is easy. But, man, that's where your witness just shines so brightly, to love people that are unlovable. And guess what? You can be a pretty unlovable person too at times, and it may be God working in their life to love you as well. Number three, what might God be teaching us through our roommate working out good? What's a training ground to prepare you for future married life? Now, maybe you never thought of it this way before. Like, really? Um... And oh, it's so true. You know the misnomer that, uh, okay, we'll go back to the Christian cupcake, that my Christian cupcake someday will be the perfect cupcake. I mean, we won't have arguments. Everything will flow smoothly because we love each other. I love her. She loves me. And those are great goals. I mean, we don't look for a fight, do we? And yet, Life is, has some principles. you got two sinners in the same canoe that have been rowing their different directions all life, and guess, all their lives, and guess what? They're going to be going in circles in the middle of the river instead of heading in the right direction. They're going to be going back and hitting rocks and hitting the banks, and, and they have an opportunity to display, uh, showcase the gospel in their marriage. But what? how do we prepare for that? Well, God puts people in our lives that show us how to put others first. It's a training ground to learn how to communicate, to work through disagreements, to seek and to give forgiveness. It's a training ground. Don't forget that. Another point here. Why might God be using your roommate to accomplish his good? To encourage you to maturity and help others that aren't. To encourage you to maturity and to help others that aren't. In Galatians 6, 1 and 2. You know, Clay's been referred to this passage last week in the Sunday evening service uh, about Christian growth. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this you who are spiritual, you, you who are moving on in Christian maturity, you who are walking by the Spirit, you, you who are empowered by the Spirit, you go and not just enjoy the fruitfulness of Christian growth for your own benefit, which is a wonderful thing, but now use that and extend that to others who would benefit from it. And certainly when we have a, a roommate or others we're with that are difficult to live with or have needs that we see, we can be used by God to help mature them. And then finally, our last point here, how God may be working out his good in you through your roommate, is to teach me that I'm the source of quarrels and not someone else. Ooh, where did that one come from? (laughs) That I'm the source of quarrels? I mean, when there's something going wrong, I mean, that missing lasagna, I didn't eat it, right? I mean, that was my roommate. And I, I mean the crosshairs were right there. It was pretty obvious. He's the source of my problem. What did he reveal in my heart when I was thinking sinfully toward him? That that desire for that particular food was so important to me, I was willing to sin when I didn't get it. And James tells us this. this is something you can meditate on in your time with the Lord. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He tells us where the source of quarrels and arguments come from. And he doesn't say it's the other person. He says this in James 4 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Hey, you want to know? Yeah, it's my roommate Dan who stole my lasagna. No. James says this Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? It's my desires, it's what I want and I'm willing to sin to keep or get. You desire and do not have, it says in verse 2, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. I want something so badly, it says, so you fight and quarrel. Our first thought is the other person needs to change when things aren't going well. And that's not where God has us look first. He says, look at your heart. It's you. And so God is using your roommate situation to make you more like Christ and be encouraged to trust God more fully, all right? All right, so that was lesson number one. We got three to go, and we're going to keep buzzing along here, all right? So the next uh, lesson here on eight lessons I wish I learned when I went to college, number six, prioritize being Miss Right before pursuing Mr. Right, all right? And you can flip that around if you want. Focus or make your priority being Mr. Right. Before pursuing misright. Now, a lot of you come to Liberty with a, a number of different goals and ambitions. I hope you do. Things you want to accomplish, right? I mean, a top goal should be to get a degree. Something practical, something that can, you know, uh, help you sustain and get through life. Uh, if it, if that's not one of your goals, you know, the LU experience is just a very, very expensive party, right? I mean, it's. It, it, needs to be, it needs to be a little more than that. And, of course, another worthy goal, Lord willing, if it's your desire, is to find a spouse, a dating relationship that would ensue that would lead you to marriage. And there's a good fundamental reason we seek a partner in life. God designed us for relationship and friendship. In Genesis 2.18, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Marriage is companionship. When God designed man, there was something missing. He needed needed relationship. He needed intimacy. He wanted friendship. He wanted companionship. And the rest of creation could not fulfill that need. So God made a helpmate suitable to him and named her Eve. And God designed man and woman to complement, to complete each other. And that's expressed in covenantal marriage. Now, marriage isn't commanded. If you desire to marry, marry. We're we're commanded to marry in the Lord. And for those of you that don't have that desire or singleness is on your radar, there's great blessing in singleness. And many of you here are in dating relationships now. You might be thinking, well, how am I going to get something from this? Well, I am targeting... More of those that haven't made that kind of that thresh, they haven't crossed that threshold yet. They're not dating yet. They're not engaged yet. But there's still things to glean for all of us in here, no matter where you're at. But our lesson here is targeting the unattached ones. All right, if you're one of those today, to provide some dating insight that I believe will be helpful to you as you think about a God-honoring time that brings great blessing in the blessing of of dating and marriage. I want us to go to the Old Testament book of Judges for a few minutes. I'm going to show it up on the screen here, but you can turn to Judges 14 if you want to go there. Uh, Joel James has uh, a nice article on uh, companionship and marriage. And uh, he relates some wrong ways to date from the book of Judges and specifically the life of Samson. Samson's dating disaster, all right? Sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Uh, and it is Samson's dating disaster. And it says in Judges 14, 1 and 2, Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Wow. <laughs> if Samson led a seminar in dating 101 how to date and Seal your fate right here it is right here and his slogan would be i see i want i pursue all right that would be samson's dating advice and we learn here from someone who did it wrong his dating disaster here and again joel james notes several crucial mistakes from samson's pursuit of this relationship first timna was a philistine she was an unbeliever what Samson was asking for was unlawful, and a clear contradiction from God's word that God's people were only to marry within the people of Israel, within God's, God's followers. He was marrying; he was pursuing an unbeliever. You'll see also um, in Judges fourteen three, and, ver- and the first part of that verse there, that Samson rejected his parents' counsel says there in verse 3, his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? What did he do? He rebuffed the counsel from his parents. Now we're we'll going to talk about parental relationship with you guys in a few minutes. But you can see he's just mowing down one fence after the other that God put there. And the other thing you see here, uh, number three, is Samson's attraction was based on appearance only. I mean, there was nothing about Timna's character, her spiritual walk, or her desire for the Lord. It, it, it wasn't even registering a blip on Samson's love meter. It wasn't there at all. It was just her appearance, her physical assets. That was the only thing. And what were the consequences? Before the wedding was over, Samson's wife manipulated him, betrayed him. Samson responded in anger They were separated, and he was relegated to a cave. What's our point here? Samson was not spiritually ready for marriage. And if there was dating back in the day, he wasn't ready for that either. He wasn't looking for the right things. His heart wasn't in the right place. He had no desire for God's ways of marriage. He had complete and utter disregard for what God had to say. And so we talk about prioritizing prioritize being Ms. Right before pursuing Mr. Right. It's all about avoiding Samson's errors by, by allowing God to mold you and fashion you with a heart that seeks the right things in a dating relationship and marriage. So what do we do? Well, how do I give you dating uh, advice in 30 seconds? I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to give you a few general guidelines to get you guys pursuing this so you're just not waiting for, oh, that lady from the Philistines. She looks kind of attractive. And you start getting to know her. Also, you're in a dating relationship before you're ready. And what? here's the point here. How do you get yourself ready? Well, first of all, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Work. This word for train. It's like being in a gymnasium. 1 Peter 4, 7 goes like this. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Go after God. Get serious about being like him. Develop a thirst for him that can only be quenched by him. Forsake those things that hinder your walk with the Lord. Be in tune with the Lord. Readiness for marriage, readiness for dating doesn't come from a seminar. That might be part of it but it comes by a heart that's shaped and fashioned that wants to be like Jesus. So ladies, start meeting with other ladies. Start getting with others that that show an example of a godly relationship. This is what Titus talks about, the older women teaching the younger. Go after them. Discipleship, ladies' Bible studies. Men do the same thing. You know, men, we do grace and granite, not just to take up time on 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. Why do we do things like that to build up your spiritual muscle, to keep you on the right track, to keep spiritual truth in your life? And it's not like, well, if I don't go to Grace and Grant, I'll have a disaster dating relationship. I'm not saying that. You don't have to be here Tuesday or else, you know, your history as far as the dating is concerned. That's not not what I'm saying. But get engaged. Start making decisions. Be proactive. Get into things that get you in the word and after and chasing after the Lord himself. So, train yourself for godliness. Secondly, educate yourself on the roles of a husband and a wife. Do the pre, 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 pre premarital, all right? And, like, what's expected of me? What should I be looking for in another lady? Where, Where are we all driving towards here? You know, Samson went to the altar, not a clue what God expected of him. He saw. He enjoyed it, and he pursued it. He just followed his passions. Oh boy, God has so much instruction here of what we're signing up for and what God wants us to do. What does it say for men? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, you're the leader. Start leading. Start taking on responsibility. Grow up. If you want a date, you got to get off the Xbox a little more and get on other things. Now, I'm not calling Xbox sin, all right? I'm not going that far. Maybe some things you might do on there might be sinful, but guys, I'm not saying not to have fun, but if life is video games and popcorn and football games, and then you see that Philistine woman, oh, are you ready? Are you getting yourself ready? Make progress, make steps, get in the right direction, serve, lead. Take your study seriously. You've got to provide for somebody someday. That's your responsibility. That's what God's going to give you to do. So what do you do? Work on those things. Ready yourself. And when you see that Christian cupcake, you might be ready. Ladies, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Your calling is to arrange yourself, to submit, to to live in such a way as to make the family successful and your husband successful for the Lord. And there's nothing lost here, guys. We're not talking about, oh, secondary submitter here to the all-powerful husband. We are equal in the image of Christ. And I'm often reminded, man, I go to the Trinity. I just look at the Trinity. Who Jesus, who gave himself for all, who submitted himself to the Father's will, fully God, just as the Father is, yet submitted to his plan and his will and his purposes, Jesus' earthly ministry revolved it around the Father's will, didn't it? And you see this holy relationship within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you if you want to aspire to be like Jesus as a godly wife, you'll be like Jesus was in how he submitted to the Father. So you arrange yourself a way, You in this way. You you, you become industri- industrious and resourceful. You honor God's authorities, and you adorn yourself in a godly manner. I'll just give you one more thing here, all right? And that's study the principles of dating and marriage. Study them, you know? Get some materials. Here's two materials here I would recommend. First, Pastor Clay has a great write-up, okay? It's in our boundless website, Dating, Moving from Singleness to Marriage in a Way that Honors Christ. It, It goes through these principles. What am I signing up for? What should I look for in another person that I might be interested in dating or even marriage someday? And it goes over these principles and take them to heart. Look, at, look up the scriptures that are there and be encouraged and educated here. And the other one was the one I talked about earlier about Joel, from Joel James, the companionship principle bringing biblical sanity to the insanity of dating. Uh, there you just need to Google uh, the companionship principle Joel James. Put Joel James on there because there's a Church of Latter-day Saints that have a, a companionship principle too. Don't go there. but uh, So put in Joel James as well, and, uh, and, I, and you'll see uh, Samson's dating dis- disaster and a lot of other good things that are in there. All right? All right. We're going to keep going along. Now, they're not getting any easier here, okay, as we go from point to point, and this one's not going to be any easier either, and I'm going to lose uh, Pastor of the Year voting from all of you but mom and dad still know best okay mom and dad still know best and they're still laughing into hinter regions honor and obey your parents you know as a pastor you know I, I struggle a little bit how am I going to share this in five or six minutes and make it stick? in a way, and I, I all I can really do is give you the scriptures and tell you what they say and, and just have you pause and take notice here for those times when you're just not seeing eye to eye with mom and dad, and there is disagreement, and it's a wonderful thing. They've given you the opportunity to have some independence here in college, and it kind of feels good at times, doesn't it, <laughs> to kind of make some of your own decisions or go a certain way or have this certain time schedule. And without being told everything you need to do and when to do it, and how high to jump, and all the other things that go on at home. And we start, in our independence and our freedom, we start finding some good, even good things to do, right? I'm not saying everything's bad that we want to do independently from them, but just good things. And it may not be completely in line with what mom and dad were thinking. And uh, conflict comes. And... Um, you know, I remember when I was your age, I didn't mind a little bit of parental oversight. I didn't sit and want the rules and the restrictions and the responsibilities that came with still being a child of my parents. And I was unsaved, but I had a lot to learn about God's design for the home and a parent-child relationship. And I'm sure the same is true for you. We're made out of the same flesh and blood. And boy, God, God's word defines his plan for the family. And anything less is misery and hardship. There's another great resource here, because we only have a few minutes to talk about this, but it's from Pastor Clay again, on our Boundless website. It's called Relating to Parents. So again, go to TimberlakeBaptist.org, go to the Boundless College class, you'll see resources, and there's Relating to Parents. But you know, the key verse here uh, that you guys know well is Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, right? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Three questions we want to look at quickly here, all right? Who are the children? They're more than infants, right? These aren't, you know, an infant is a child of the parent. But here specifically to this command for children, obey your parents and the Lord, well, they're old enough to receive spiritual instruction and to be held accountable to obey. So we got a little bit of an older child, more than an infant, but of course the big elephant in the room is, to what age am I still a child that's under the authority of my parents, right? What's the expiration date, Rich? Just tell me that. That's what I want to know. And obviously we know marriage is right. In marriage we leave and cleave, develop our own family unit. But in this text, no age is given for the single for the single person and the extent of authority of the parents. In Ephesians 6.4, it does say the father is to bring them up or, or to raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so in the context of a parental authority to bring them up, raise them, nurture them, support them, care for them, provide for them, What are they doing? They're exercising authority over their children. So to the extent that parents are still caring, nurturing, providing for their children, you are still under their authority. In other words, just moving away from home wherever it is to here did not bring an expiration to that authority if they're still providing for you. All right? You get that? If if you're still dependent on them. I remember uh, several summers after Christy and I were married, I would go to Texas Tech. I lived in Ohio with Christy, going to Texas Tech for a summer session for master's. And uh, guess what? When I left for a month, I was still Christy's husband. It didn't expire. It was like a one-month hiatus. I'm no longer married. No, distance, time, four weeks away for six summers. Ugh. Now there were some guys I was with there that were acting like they weren't married anymore, and we won't go into those details. a lot of ungodliness. And they act that way, like it's expired. And that's not so for the child that's still dependent on parents. You're still under their authority. And so let's look at another a few more questions here. So what's expected from the children? It's pretty clear in the text, isn't it? Obey your parents and the Lord and honor your father and mother. The command is to obey. It's quite straightforward, isn't it? Listen and do as they say. I can't get any more clear than what the scriptures are so clear about. And that honor is just that attitude of reverence, right? Respect. It leads and it paves the way for obedience. And we're talking about developing a proper attitude here, right? The role of the eyes that becomes physically apparent or is going out in our heart when we're told to do something we don't want to do is not honor and respect. And it won't lead to the kind of obedience that God is looking for here. When we are commanded to obey your parents in the Lord, realize your parents were assigned by God himself for you, to care for you, to protect you. They are a delegated authority from God. And to resist or disregard this authority is to not only disobey your parents, but to resist God himself. And hey, look, I get it. I'm flesh and blood too. Any authority figures over me, I often bristle. I don't just like line right up and go. I struggle as well. And theoretically, it all goes well, right? When we're all in agreement. It's just when that disagreement comes then it's like, this can't be of God, right? As I said, Jesus always humbly submitted to the will of the Father. Philippians 2.8 says this, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place. We are no more like the Savior than we, than we would submit to a God-ordained authority like our parents. God has made a blueprint for a building called the family. It's perfectly designed. It's a perfect plan. Husband, wife, children, assigned roles. And the closer we get to understanding those roles and living them out, the more we just flourish and are fruitful for God's intention in the blessing of family. But we're tempted to modify the building design, aren't we? That blueprint has to have a mistake. And we come up with cheap substitutes, cheap building materials, right? Uh, we don't need rebar in that uh, 30-story building. Let's go, let's go with Legos or something, right? And uh, <laughs> let's build with something else, something I, I know will work. And we got the big Duplo box, right? Boom, 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 yeah. We get about this high and it totters over. What is God saying? His design's better. Trust me. Trust what I have to say. Believe my blueprint and just follow. And, you know, there's questions that come along the way. Why obey and honor? Why? Well, what does it say there? That it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. God promises prosperity. A lot of things we could say there. Clay does a a nice job in his uh, write-up on this particular area. So I, again, encourage you to go over in that direction. But even, it's, it's for your blessing. It's for your good. Lots of questions come up. We don't have time to really uh, get to today. What, how do I uh, honor parents that are unsaved? Come talk to me sometime. You're struggling with that. I, I had that a number of years, and I praise God. I can say today my parents know the Lord. But there's a lot of navigation, a lot of difficulty, especially with this next one here. When What about parents that directly command you to disobey God? You know, some of you may be in situations you shall never go to a church again. What do you do? How do you respond? How do I honor them and respect them and obey them when they're telling me to do something that God says clearly I shouldn't be doing? I went through that. I was raised Catholic, going to the Catholic church, get saved. I'm learning from my pastors. Hey, you need to be in a Christian church, one where there's believers, a healthy church, as we've been learning on Thursday nights. I came under that conviction, and, you know, there's a passage in Acts that says, you know, do we, do we obey God rather than men? Peter and the apostles that were, the disciples that were told never to preach again, could they stop preaching when a God-ordained authority, like the government was telling them to stop? And they couldn't because there was a higher authority, God himself in his word. And therefore, if you're in situations like that, do I go forward? Do I not? What do I do? Talk to us. Get counsel. And we'll see how to get you through in a God-honoring, respectful way for, with your parents, all right? And uh, we'll go on. We'll, we'll skip this next question, and we'll just get to our last uh, item right here in closing. And our last point today is make God-honoring decisions as you seek God's wisdom. We want to kind of bring it to a close here, our last lesson Eight lessons I wish I learned when I went to college, it's this. Make God-honoring decisions as you seek God's wisdom. You know, life at your age is full of decisions. I mean, you might be, this might be just coming out of your ears right now. Just like, can, there be, can I just have a day where I want to decide on something? <laughs> You know, there's moral decisions, right and wrong, and just doing the right thing that are clearly articulated in Scripture, and there's non-moral decisions. Decisions and things that have to be decided on that, yeah, there's two good choices, and which one should I choose? Where do I go? Which job do I take? Which class should I sign up for? Should I drop this class or not? What food to choose in the rot, or whatever you call that now, right? I mean, there's a lot of decisions you got to make, and that could be life-altering, yes, uh, in the cafeteria. But there's, there's, how do we make God-honoring decisions? And quite frankly, there's a lot of things going around in Christian circles that aren't very godly, not very godly advice, and perhaps a, a default way we as Christians believe I can make decisions that are spiritually solid, when in, in many cases it's much more mystical than it is biblical. What does God want from us? Well, we've got to make decisions. 1 Corinthians 4.2. There's a big fly on the screen there. Uh, he's getting it. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. You're required to be faithful. That's our, that's our job in life, to make God big, to make God glorious, to enhance his reputation. We do that by faithful. Adherence to his commands and what he's called us to be, and that includes making good and godly decisions. So, how do you make decisions? Well, there's a misguided notion, and hear me out here, okay? Listen, there's this, there's this notion that there's this quest, this journey I have to go on to find God's personal plan for me, like He's my life coach. He's written up a plan, and I just got to find that piece of paper somewhere and read it so I know what I'm supposed to do. His personal plan for my life. And we start getting in this place where we're uber-spiritualizing decisions, okay, in a direction that starts becoming very unspiritual. We're looking for tailor-made directions from God, heavenly directions signposts personal revelation an individual will that god can just tell us what to do give me a sign lord something in the clouds something i see today something that just lets me know whether i should pursue this direction or go that direction if you just give me a sign i'll know what to do and it's a horrible way to live we're always looking for divine breadcrumbs everywhere is god speaking here Oh, wait, there's breadcrumbs that too. Maybe he wants me to go this way. Oh, no, there's more breadcrumbs this way. And All of a sudden, what are we doing? We're just spinning around, looking for the perfect sign, the perfect circumstances, what might be a real sign from God that tells me what I need to do. And this isn't God's way. It's not discerning signs. It's not interpreting circumstances. Does God use circumstances? Absolutely. Of course he does. Why did Jacob and his sons come to Egypt? It's because there was a great famine, and they were hungry, and they went to go to Egypt, and God used those circumstances to actually perform steps in his will. But that's not the grand determinator of what we choose to do and what we don't do to, uh, choose to do. It's just looking for a sign. It's just asking God, well, is this, is this from you or isn't it? You know, God is able to speak through donkeys. You ever see that in Scripture? Oh, wow, that donkey just spoke. Wow. Could God speak through a donkey today? Of course he could. Why, he's God. I just told you he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. Here's my point today, though. Don't keep looking for the speaking donkey, all right? If God wants to speak to a donk, through a donkey to you, please listen and record it, okay? <laughs> uh, I, would, I would love to hear it. He can do that. Of course he can. But that's not his mode of giving directions, right? What has he given to us? What's the all-sufficient thing he's given to us? His word. Where do we find wisdom? Remember wisdom defined? Biblical wisdom. We looked at the first uh, last week. Skillfully making God-honoring decisions through the purposeful application of God's truth. God's truth. He's already revealed himself. Why do we keep looking around for these breadcrumbs? He's made his will known. Now immerse yourself in it. Learn it. Make decisions from it. Make it part of your life. Do it skillfully. That's wisdom. Remember we looked in Proverbs. Go after wisdom. Search for it as for silver. Ask for it. Plead for it. And it comes from his all-sufficient word. Wise decision-making. Right here. Search the scriptures. The God-breathed scriptures. It's profitable, right, for teaching, for rebuking, for reproving, for training in righteousness. How? Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, thoroughly equipped for every good work, for every good decision. It's there for the asking, for the learning, for the application. Secondly, ask God for wisdom. Remember James 1.5, it says, If you ask... If you ask, you'll give. If any man lacks wisdom, James 1.5, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Stop looking for the donkey. Pray. Seek the word. Let God use his word in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life to guide you. Next, wise decision making. It does the necessary Homework. Do your homework. Investigate things. You know, not everything's necessarily a uber spiritual decision where there's necessarily a a chapter and verse to put on it. But if I got to decide between two jobs or where I'm going to live or do I go off campus or on campus uh, next year, you know, do some homework. What are the costs? I want to be a good steward of my money. What's this going to cost me as far as time? I don't have a car. How am I going to get from point A to point B? Right. I mean. You, you go through and do your homework. You collect information. You seek counsel from others. It says in Proverbs nineteen twenty, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And finally, our last point here, wise decision-making trusts in God. Guys, looking for the breadcrumbs is not trusting God. It's making it more mystical than biblical. Make it prayerful. Seek after him. He's a good God, he's a loving God, and he's not trying to hide his plan from you. Does he have a plan for your life? Absolutely. And that plan unfolds as you know his word and live according to it and allowing him to use your decisions to even accomplish that very will. Much more that could be said about that. We have a series on biblical decision-making or God-honoring decision-making on our boundless site. It's all audio and you can avail yourself to that. Okay, so there we go. Eight lessons I wish I learned when I went to college. I trust those are of help to you and a benefit in your walk with the Lord this week and the days to come. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of the day. Thank you for our time in your word and how we pray you'd help us to put these principles to work in our lives for your glory and your praise. If it's in your name, we pray it. Amen.